Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, in which I invite uh, guests to join me to talk about the scriptures they never saw. In other words, particular verses of scripture. Usually my guests already came to this with a deep commitment to scripture as well as to Jesus Christ. But then in their study of scripture, a particular verse or verses started uh, acting like the stone in the shoe and became a, a troublesome uh, word in their life that eventually opened them, them to the beauty of the Catholic faith. And that's essentially the, the, the gist of our program. Uh, the, the guest that I have for today's program is Mark McNeil. And Mark McNeil comes from a unique background. Let me, the, on the website, deepinscripture.com, you'll find out more information about the program and about, about all the archived programs, about the Coming Home Network, all that's available. But our guest today, Mark McNeil, is currently the Department Chair of Theology at Strake Jesuit College Preparatory, where he has taught for 10 years. He has earned master's degrees in scripture, theology, and philosophy. So Mark comes to this program with a, a good background in Scripture as well as theology. Mark also teaches theology part-time at the University of St. Thomas and has spoken at parishes and conferences in the Houston area as well as throughout the country. He has appeared twice on EWTN on the Journey Home program. And uh, it was a pleasure to have him both as a guest on the regular program, but then also as a part of uh, the roundtable. Uh, he's... Uh, recorded a number of talks and are available from St. Joseph's Communications in California if you want to know more about Mark's story as well as some of the topics that he speaks on. If you go to the Deepen Scripture website, you'll find a link to Mark's story. The, uh, oh, I guess a couple other housekeeping items. You can watch this program live on the internet. Again, if you click on deepenscripture.com, there's a link to watch us. But most importantly, I would like to have you give us a call or send us an email with a question or a comment about the program. You can call us at 800-664-5110, anytime at 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Now, Mark McNeil, our guest, comes to us from a unique Christian background, unique in the sense that uh, the particular theology from which he came from is quite a bit different than, let's say, the majority of Christians. And I'll let him talk more about that when he joins us. But he comes from what's called a oneness Pentecostal perspective, a Jesus only. And I would say that the topic, besides just the issue of the Trinity that we'll look, out, look at today, one of the topics, the aspects of this topic is that I was always Trinitarian, and maybe many of you listening are, have always been Trinitarian Christians. And often a theology that is so pervasive of our faith and pervasive amongst our Christian friends and family, even though we may be of different traditions, we can sometimes take that very pervasive theology for granted and even find ourselves not as Trinitarian as we might think. 
And, and I do believe that by having a guest like Mark join us and talk about his own journey, it will help us appreciate his journey, but also maybe appreciate where we are right now in our own understanding of our Trinitarian faith, which sometimes needs some correction. Are we truly recognizing the beauty and the fullness and the importance of our Trinitarian faith? Now, the scriptures that Mark has chosen for us today all deal with this topic. He has four verses from the book of Acts and then one from Matthew 28. The verses in the book of Acts, uh, I'm sure you, you recognize the book of Acts is the, the earliest book that expresses the growth of the early church after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The apostles that he has commissioned have carried on the work that he gave them to do. They've received the Holy Spirit, and as a result of the spread and the growth of Christianity, we encounter a couple of verses that Mark has chosen for us that demonstrate the, the process by which new believers become a part of the body of Christ, and it's through baptism. And these verses talk about this, but as I read them, you'll, you'll hear, if you listen, that there's a seeming contradiction, a seeming conflict with the last verse that I'm going to read from Matthew 28, which is the great commission that Jesus gave to his apostles uh, after his resurrection, before his ascension. And so let me read these verses, listen to them, we'll take a break, and then Mark will join us, and we'll talk about the significance of these texts. The first four are from Acts. First, Acts chapter 2, 28. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then Acts chapter 8, verse 16. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Acts chapter 10, verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And then Acts chapter 19, verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then finally, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ 
and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Mark McNeil, who's joining us from Texas. Hello, Mark. Hello, Marcus. Good to be with you. Well, thank you for taking time out of your uh, your spring break from your teaching responsibilities to join us on the program. Well, it's my pleasure. And I've always enjoyed you when you've you've uh, joined me on the journey home. Or uh, part of it is just in fact that I enjoy you as a friend. But you come from a theological perspective that is radically different than my mm-hmm. own. Yes. Uh, and maybe it's a, maybe that's where we ought to begin is to help the audience understand your perspective. And would I say that it is a fairly unique perspective in American Christianity? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's hard to estimate the exact numbers, but I, I come from a background in what we called oneness Pentecostalism. We called our own belief oneness, which actually originated in the Pentecostal movement early in the 20th century. Uh, there was a controversy early on in Pentecostalism over the correct formula for baptism, and it centered on those verses that you just read. And uh, that controversy sort of uh, resulted in a split between two major segments of Pentecostalism, one of them sort of represented by a more traditional understanding of God uh, that you could find like in the Assemblies of God uh, denomination of Pentecostalism, the other uh, split off into various different forms of, of oneness theology, which, again, centered on the baptism issue, but then that resulted in a redefinition of how God was understood. And I really want to emphasize that, Marcus, to start with, is that uh, the issue of baptism grew into a, uh, a redefined understanding of God, uh, that it wasn't that the uh, you know rejection of the Trinity led to a, a, a redefining of baptism. It was the other way around. Mm-hmm. It was it was the the uh, questioning of the Trinitarian formula for baptism that led to a rejection of the Trinity. And uh, I I personally think that that really is the crux of the issue regarding the baptismal formula is that uh, baptism, as you pointed out at the beginning, is the way in which people become a part of the church. We enter into the the people of God or the church through the sign of baptism, through the sacrament of baptism. And baptism involves, um, the meaning that's expressed in baptism is a meaning of what what are we entering into. And the Trinitarian formula says we're entering into the faith of the triune God. And to reject the Trinitarian formula seems to uh, require that one define themselves over against the belief in the Trinity. And that's certainly how it worked out uh, historically. Maybe I can just throw in uh, my own story real quick sure, uh, ahead, as, to how, as to how this happened. Uh, as a young teenage boy, I, went in, I walked into a, a United Pentecostal Church, which is the largest of the Oneness Pentecostal organizations. I walked into a United Pentecostal Church thinking that I was going to meet a... Uh, 
a school friend of mine there for youth service. At the time, I attended a Baptist church with my family. We had just begun going to a, a church about a year earlier. Uh, I didn't really go anywhere during my early years in life. Uh, and then uh, now I'm about, uh, I'd say, around uh, eighth grade, and uh, I'm meeting a friend of mine at this uh, Pentecostal church, not knowing anything about it. And uh, I walk into the church, and a, a minister meets me, who turns out to be the evangelism director at this uh, particular church. And we enter into a conversation, and he impressed me with his knowledge of the Bible, and he began to question me about my beliefs. And I, I defended them as best as I could from a Baptist perspective, and I knew nothing about where he was coming from. And, and I remember specifically him asking me about my baptism, and, uh, and he directed me to uh, Acts 2.38, the first verse that you read, where Peter says, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, I knew enough, even at that age, to refer to Matthew 28:19, mm-hmm. where you know Jesus said uh, uh, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he very gently explained to me that the in Matthew 28 verse 19, Jesus said we're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he guided me toward accepting the idea that the name of the Father is none other than Jesus, that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And um, in the course of uh, several weeks of studying this, I became convinced of it. And for the next seven years, I found myself in Oneness Pentecostalism, learning the um, belief that, uh, that God is not a trinity of persons, that really the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are just different activities of Jesus, who is the one person who is God. The example we always used for this was, uh, I'm while I'm sitting here talking to you, Marcus, I'm a father, son, and a husband, uh, and uh, so it is with Jesus. Uh, although he's one person, and that God is one person, just like I'm one person, but I, I function in several roles or modes of activity, so it is Jesus is the Father since he's the Creator, he's the Son because he's the Redeemer, he's the Holy Spirit because he sanctifies us and lives within us by his Spirit. And so this seemed like a very simple and persuasive way of um, reconciling all of these various uh, verses of Scripture uh, that we have in front of us. Matthew 28:19 is really just a way of describing the name of Jesus. And then in the book of Acts, we see people actually baptizing in the name of Jesus. And so that must mean that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I lived with that belief for a number of years. Let, let me just ask you another question in the midst of that, because my guess is that your uh, apologi- apologetics United Pentecostal friend also had to explain away a few other verses, because in the Gospels mm-hmm. themselves, we have Jesus talking to the Father. We, mm-hmm. we see a distinct division between the Father and the Son, and the mm-hmm. idea that the Spirit will mm-hmm. be sent, which, as you know, um, you teach theology now, that mm-hmm. actually the distinction seems so clear that it actually led to other heresies which actually mm-hmm. saw three gods rather than the Trinitarian mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, well, let me maybe state how we explain such things and then show you uh, briefly how I was able to escape that particular Great. Uh, interpretation. The the key in Oneness Pentecostal theology, uh, and I put key in quotes there, uh, if you talk to any Oneness Pentecostal that understands their theology very well, uh, they will tell you over and again that the key to their theology, to understanding the New Testament, is that any time you see a distinction between the Father and the Son, or between Jesus and God, it is a distinction between deity and humanity. Uh, 
Uh, really, when you look at it, in, in retrospect, when I look at it, one is Pentecostal theology, if, to use historical terms, is very Nestorian. Uh, Nestorius was accused of teaching that Jesus was two persons, that he was a divine and human person in one sort of entity or one body. Uh, rather than the the uh, orthodox view uh, was that uh, the divine and human came together in a single person without confusing the two natures that the divine and human were distinct but yet it was a single person in jesus uh... in oneness pentecostal theology they see him as being really two persons functionally in one body so that when the son speaks to the father or the father speaks to the son it's really the deity of jesus speaking to the humanity of jesus and vice versa now, we applied that to all these various verses of Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit is, is problematic in that view because uh, we really had a little bit of a difficult time dealing with texts that refer to the Holy Spirit in personal terms, like when the Holy Spirit hears from the Father and the Son, like in Jesus' speaking in John uh, 16, for instance, or 15. Um, and there are other texts that speak of the sending of the Holy Spirit, but we would usually just refer to those as, uh, you know, very much like a Jehovah's Witness would explain the Holy Spirit as sort of God's activity or God's influence in the world. Uh, we didn't really see the Holy Spirit in personal terms as distinct from the Father and the Son, except as distinct as an activity of God. Uh, but the Father and the Son, we always understood that as a distinction of deity and humanity, or two natures in Jesus, which were really seen as like two persons. But what really brought me to question this as time went on, and, and when I really began to question it was during my senior year in the Bible college that I went to, in, in the Oneness Pentecostal movement, the United Pentecostal Church, we had a number of different Bible schools, and when I graduated from high school, I went and studied for three years at one of our uh, colleges, and I graduated there in 1990. During my senior year at the college, I, was, uh, I took up a, a major writing assignment. We were given a, a senior project that we had to study intensively something and write a, a kind of thesis of sorts. And my uh, uh, self-chosen task was to write on the subject of um, Trinitarian proof texts. What I wanted to do was go through the New Testament and find every text that we found problematic for our theology and show how oneness Pentecostal theology could answer those texts. Well, the more I studied them and the more I was exposed to sort of a traditional or orthodox way of reading the Bible, uh, the more uh, I began to see how it made some sense. What really bothered me were certain texts, like in um, one text in particular that stuck in my mind was uh, John 17, verse 5, where Jesus is praying to the Father. That in and of itself was not all that troublesome to me uh, as a oneness Pentecostal because, again, we saw Jesus' prayers as just an interaction between the divine and human natures of Jesus. But in verse 5, Jesus says of John 17, uh, Father, glorify thou me with your own self, with the glory that I had with you before the mm. world was. <laughs> Now, now that text, uh, I never could quite get over it because there Jesus speaks of the distinction between himself and the Father before the creation yep. of the world. That would be, of course, before the humanity of Jesus came to be. Uh, and so uh, those kinds of texts, and of course I could also include John 1.1 in this, but those texts that speak about uh, the Son of God before the incarnation, and yet he is distinct from the Father, uh, those texts are the ones that bothered me the most, and there's a you know a good handful of those in the uh, in the New Testament. Uh, and so when I looked at it that way, and I saw uh, Jesus as the incarnate Son of God who was in relationship to the Father before the creation of the world, 
Uh, and then I went to our various sources of oneness Pentecostal theology, which, by the way, are fairly limited because the movement is fairly young. Right. Uh, we had some literature and, you know, some uh, people who had really struggled with some of these questions, but the answers that they gave I found un- unsatisfying. And, and it's sort of like, you know, with oneness Pentecostal theology, uh, so much of it is intertwined together. The, the kind of thinking that leads you to one conclusion is also the kind of thinking that tends to guide your thinking elsewhere. So that if one thing begins to unravel, then all of a sudden everything else begins to unravel. And that's how it was with the baptismal formula issue. After I began to see the Trinity in the New Testament, and then I turned to these other texts in the book of Acts regarding baptism uh, in the name of Jesus, I began to see them in a a bit of a different light. Um, But before I go to that, uh, uh, maybe I should pause to see if any of that made any sense. Oh, yeah. In fact, (laughs) why don't we take a break and we'll come back a little bit. First of all, before we go to break, may I ask you a question? Just to clarify something. Yeah. In 1 Peter... We have the very clear statement by Peter saying in verse chapter 3, verse 21, mm-hmm. baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Right. Now, from a oneness Pentecostal perspective, it was your understanding of baptism that then mm-hmm. defined your understanding of God. Did mm-hmm. you, did, you took baptism very seriously then. Absolutely. In fact, uh, that's, that's an important point about oneness Pentecostal theology is they insisted on the, on the necessity of baptism, uh, unlike the other Pentecostals that tend to see baptism much like a Baptist would, that it is an ordinance that expresses your faith, but it's not essential for salvation. The one is Pentecostals believe very strongly that baptism is essential to salvation. Uh, without it, you're not a member of the church. And the, but, but here's the crucial point. They do not see uh, baptism as being effective because it's a sacrament. They see it as being effective because it is an act of obedience to Christ, and it has to have, in order to be valid, the name of Jesus must be invoked over you as a formula, so that if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus only, you have not been correctly baptized. And since it's essential for salvation, if you haven't been baptized in the name of Jesus, you cannot be uh, have any confidence that you are saved or you in a right relationship with God. So, I mean, the, the issue is not just a, a peripheral or surface difference here. Uh, it is a matter of, of uh, heaven or hell as to whether or not you have been properly baptized. It, it's interesting, Mark, when you think about not long ago on the deep in, on this program, I had a guest who was a former uh, Seventh-day Adventist. Mm. And in their perspective, they have their one key theology, which is Mm -hmm. this keeping of the Saturday, Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And then from that, everything Mm -hmm. else is defined. And there's the key issue. And and it sounds like from your perspective, again, we have a a leader, a group of people that Mm -hmm. get very committed to one particular interpretation of an understanding of a particular theology. And then that is what sets them apart from everybody else, as if they have found the one key to everything. Right, absolutely. And that's certainly the case here. Uh, and that, w- that was another thing, just to throw in, another thing that really uh, was unsettling after being a part of, of Oneness Pentecostalism for, you know, seven years. And yep. this, these were seven years that I was avidly studying what we believed. Uh, one of the things that, that grew to bother me was our... Uh, sort of imbalanced emphasis on this one issue or on a handful of issues. And it seemed as if 
uh, it was a very reductionistic approach to Christian faith. Yeah. And just to jump forward, that's one of the things that I find so attractive about Catholicism is its uh, sort of integrated wholeness, uh, mm-hmm. that it's not uh, so minutely focused on one thing. It seeks to integrate all truth uh, as we find it in the scriptures and the divine revelation and the history of the church. And so it's much richer and much more complete and it does much more justice to the whole of human life rather than just to one feature or one experience of our lives. All right, well then let's take a break, Mark. When we come back, let's look at those passages again from Acts and how you came to understand them from a more traditional Catholic perspective. Okay, good. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Mark McNeil, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on EWTN Live. In hard economic times, people can get easily overwhelmed. Yet our Lord reminds us to store up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. Tune in when Father Mitch talks with Father John Carafi and find out why fear is useless. What is needed is trust. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined today by Mark McNeil, and I want to remind you that uh, next time on the Journey Home program, Monday night, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, my guest will be Father Donald Calloway. He's a, becoming a more familiar face on EWTN. He's got a radical conversion story. I've had him on the Journey Home before, but this particular episode, he goes into even deeper the relationship that his own mother, as well as the Blessed Mother, had in his journey. So that's on the Journey Home program, 8 Eastern Time, Monday night on EWTN. All right, Mark, let's get back into your story in relationship to these scriptures. Uh, You're encountering verses that all talk about being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But how do we understand these, then, in conjunction to Matthew 28 that has the Trinitarian formula? Yeah, let me let me uh, begin to answer your question uh, by first pointing to an argument that was frequently used by Oneness Pentecostals about Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, when Jesus says uh, to be baptized or to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One of the first observations they would make is that Father and Son, and then of course uh, they would apply the same reasoning to Holy Spirit, are not uh, names. Uh, they are titles, uh, 
Uh, like, for instance, I'm a, a father, but that's not my name. I'm a son, but that's not my name. And so they made a, a big distinction between names and titles. And so whenever the, Matthew 28:19 says, in the name of the Father and of the Son, uh, they say, well, that obviously is not giving us the name. So it's something of a mystery as to what the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. And then the text in Matthew, I mean, in Acts chapter 2 and, and beyond, are texts that give to us the, the name that is sort of secretly concealed in Matthew 28. Now, uh, one of the things that, uh, that redirected my thought on that, and then I'll go directly to the text there in the book of Acts, one of the, the texts that really bothered me uh, about that interpretation of Matthew 28 is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, where uh, the writer says, that, uh, speaking of, of the Son of God, it says that he, in verse 4 of chapter 1, has received a more excellent name than any of the angels. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Mm-hmm. Uh, or again, I will be his father, and he will be to me uh, a son. Uh, so in that text, the, the whole argument of the son receiving a more excellent name than the angels is grounded on these various texts from the Old Testament that refer to the Son of God. In some unique sense, the Messiah or the, or the one to come would be the Son of God, and that's what makes him more excellent than the other angels. But, he says, but it says that he received a name more excellent than theirs. And so in that text, the whole argument hinges on the word son as being a name uh, that, is re- that, is, that makes him superior to the angels. So that kind of redirected my thinking on this titles-names distinction, um, that the word son and father can indeed be considered names in the proper sense of the word if there's no other like them. Uh, just like the name Abram, or Mighty Father, which is changed to Abraham, or Father of Many, uh, is simply derived from the word Father, but it, it distinguishes a particular individual. So it is with the word the Father, or the Son. We're referring to one who is uniquely Father, and one who is uniquely Son, and that makes those uh, titles function as proper names, because there's no other that have those names in that way. So that observation sort of uh, called in question the interpretation of Matthew 28. Now, the other thing that affected me with respect to the text in the book of Acts, there were two or three things that that, uh, really caused me to see them in a different light than the way that I had grown up thinking of them. Uh, One of them is a a more careful look at the text in Acts chapter 19. Uh, essentially, in the book of Acts, there are the four references to baptism in the name of Jesus or Jesus Christ. It has some variation in the titles that are used there of Christ and Lord. Uh, but in chapter 19, uh, it describes a conversation between the Apostle Paul and some disciples of John in the city of Ephesus. And John, I mean, uh, Paul goes to the city and he questions them about whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit. And the people respond to him, the disciples of John the Baptist respond and say, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> yep. And then and then Paul responds and says, unto what then were you baptized? Now the question, uh, when I started to look at this text more carefully, the question that Paul asked in response was, was um, uh, a very fascinating one. He says, if you've not hold, heard of the Holy Spirit, Unto what then were you baptized? There are two words that stand out to me there. One of them is the word unto. 
the word unto is a translation of the Greek preposition ace, which means uh, it's translated variously. It can be with reference to or unto or toward. Uh, there's a variety of different uh, mm-hmm. ways to translate it. But essentially, the, the preposition uh, brings to mind the idea of directing attention to something or making reference to something. So Paul's question is, if you don't know about the Holy Spirit, then what did your baptism have reference to? In other words, the assumption was that if you've been baptized, you should have heard about the Holy Spirit. Mm, yes. Now, this, this sounded very similar to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, where Jesus says, be baptized, and he uses the uh, preposition ace there, be baptized with reference to or unto the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that text in Matthew, I mean, in Acts chapter 19, seemed to be consistent with making reference to the Holy Spirit in baptism. Now, the second uh, uh, observation I would make is there's an interesting text in Acts chapter 8 uh, connected with uh, a little bit with the story. It's, it actually occurs uh, a little bit earlier than the story uh, about the Samaritans receiving, uh, or receiving baptism. It's actually after this. Philip is, uh, uh, after he leaves Samaria and had baptized the people, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch who is returning, apparently, from Jerusalem, Uh, to Ethiopia, and Philip sees him on the way, and he sees him reading a scroll of Isaiah in his chariot as he rolls along. And so Philip climbs up into the chariot, and they roll along, and Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading in the scroll of Isaiah. And the eunuch says, "I, I don't know what I'm reading unless someone should guide me in understanding what it says. And so he took the text there, which he was reading from Isaiah 53, the servant song that, uh, you know, Christians from the beginning have understood as a prophetic text referring to Jesus, the suffering servant. So he explains Jesus to him. And so the eunuch, as they're rolling along, sees a, a certain body of water, and he says to Philip, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip says to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And in many of the ancient manuscripts, it goes on to say, the Ethiopian eunuch says, uh, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Philip baptizes him, based upon that profession of faith. Now, what's interesting to me about these two texts of Scripture is that in Acts 19, we see the Holy Spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit as being implied in baptism. And then in Acts chapter 8, in this conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch, we see the profession of belief in Jesus as the Son of God is included in the act of baptism. So when we piece together these different texts, they seem to start sounding like Matthew 28, that when you're baptized, you profess your belief in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, in fact, is the way the early church understood this. In fact, the baptismal statement of Matthew 28:19 became the basis of the, the creeds. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is simply an elaboration on this. The uh, eventual Nicene Creed is going to be a further elaboration of that threefold structure that's represented in Matthew 28:19. Uh, people like uh, Justin Martyr, for instance, give to us a statement of what people would profess as their faith whenever they're baptized. And it sounds very, very similar uh, to the Apostles' Creed, where you essentially affirm your belief in God as having revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So what I see in the New Testament in those various texts is something that sounds a lot like when you're baptized, you're professing your faith in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how then, the, the next question would be then, what do these texts mean when they say that people were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, if you look a little more carefully at the texts themselves, and what I mean by looking more carefully is to look below the surface of the English translation. In, if you take those four texts of Acts 2.38 and 8.16 and 10.48 and 19.5, those four times that it mentions baptism in the name of Jesus or some variation of that, if you look at the Greek text, you'll actually see that there's an interesting variation in the text. The preposition that's translated as in, in most translations, some translations that try to be a little more elaborative on the meaning will give to you the subtle shades of difference. But if you look at those four texts, there's actually three different prepositions that are used in those four texts. In Acts 2.38, uh, it says, um, Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. The word that he uses there is the preposition epi, which means on or, or building upon or upon a foundation. In chapter 8, the word is ace, which is uh, the same thing that we find in Matthew 28.19. It means with reference to or, or pointing towards something. And then in chapter 10, it uses the preposition in, uh, which sounds just like our word in, and it sort of means the idea of within the sphere of something or within the context of something. So if you take these four different texts, there are some variations of meaning. It seems as if what the author is doing is saying that whenever people were baptized in the early church, they were brought into a relationship with Christ. They were placed upon him as foundation. They were directed toward Jesus. They were placed within the sphere or context of Jesus. Uh, but it's not referring to a strict formulaic way of, um, of uh, sort of making the baptism valid. What it's doing is describing a multiplicity of ways in which people are brought into relationship with Christ. Uh, through baptism. And this is, I think, very consistent with what we find in the rest of the New Testament when, let's say, uh, you know, Paul writes in his uh, various letters about baptism as being a union with Christ in his death and resurrection and so on. All of these various texts speak about baptism as a entering into of a certain kind of relationship with Christ. But here's my key point, Marcus, uh, in all of my sort of summarization of the of the data. Uh, the key point I'm trying to get at here is that all of these texts are not giving to us a strict verbal formula as much as they're giving to us a sort of theology of baptism, that, that through baptism we are brought into union with Christ. We are established upon his authority and upon the foundation of faith in him. And that, of course, would imply that we listen to what Jesus said to do, which directs us back to the original command to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I would see, now the way I look at the text in Acts, is they're telling me that I have now come under the authority of Christ, and Christ himself is the one who said to be baptized, directing attention to or pointing to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we look at these other texts, like I mentioned in Acts 8 and Acts 19, we see that reference to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and then I would also argue to the Father, is precisely what Jesus intended that we do. Would you say, Mark, uh, that beneath this problem that led to the breakaway of the United Pentecostals, Mm -hmm. not just from traditional Christianity, but then away from other Pentecostals and then and pretty much from mm -hmm. the majority, really shows the flaws of sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think you're you're certainly right, and that eventually is a, a problem that would that would grow in my mind. This this particular issue, and uh, and certainly most people don't, uh, you know, most people will live their lives and go to their grave without having to wrestle with this particular question, as you mentioned at the start. I mean, uh, for many Christians, we sort of take certain things for granted. But but I found myself in a movement very far from traditional Christianity, and the more I looked at the questions, the more I discovered that I really needed uh, someone to help guide me through these things. One of, one of the uh, experiences that I had, especially as I was studying the issues pertaining to the Trinity and the baptismal formula issue that we're talking about here, uh, one of the things that really began to bother me uh, was a, a profound sense of historical loneliness. Uh, that there weren't very many people that held to the position that I was taking here. And uh, and so the more I would investigate sort of the, the orthodox or traditional reading of these things, and by the way, I'm kind of refraining from saying the Catholic approach yep. to them, because at that time I didn't even know really anything about the Catholic position. Right. So generally speaking, when I when I would um, you know sort of study the the Trinitarian approach to these texts of Scripture, I found that they made sense to me uh, if I studied them and read them through the eyes of uh, sort of a traditional reading of the text. They made sense. Now I could read them through our eyes, through the eyes of the Oneness Pentecostal, and they also made a little bit of sense. And so the more I came to realize that really the Bible can be read through different lenses, and you could come to different conclusions about it, if the Bible is in fact given by God to guide us into the truth, uh, you know, aided by the Holy Spirit, it seems to me that uh, the Bible alone uh, is not effectively leading me there, uh, because I can read it through various different lenses and come to conclude that it means different contradictory things. Mm-hmm. So in the course of, uh, of my study, I discovered, to my surprise, that the earliest Christians never held to this sola scriptura perspective. Yep that the earliest Christians believed that the Bible should be understood within its lived and public and uh, hierarchical context with a kind of authoritative context for reading it that's inherited from the apostles and passed along through the bishops. When I saw that, it started making an awful lot of sense to me that that's why we had so many different readings of the Bible. It's because we lacked one of the essential ingredients to properly reading it. Uh, and that if I would put the Bible back in its original context, which is the apostolic sort of tradition and framework in which to understand it, uh, if I would put it back into that context, then I would have sure guidance about what it means and how I'm supposed to live it out. Um, you know, another another related point is it, it, it seemed to me the more that I, uh, you know, sort of wrestled with these issues, uh, that either everybody is expected to be a biblical scholar and know everything about virtually everything in order to have any level of assurance about the meaning of Scripture, which, by the way, is not quite the end result. Uh, when people, The more people learn about these sorts of things, if they don't have an authoritative context in which to read them and understand them, it doesn't increase their certitude. It oftentimes leads to greater doubt. Yep. Uh, but, uh, but take it on the other end of the spectrum, when you have people like, um, you know, just people that go to church and, and go home and try to take care of their kids and, and uh, do a good job when they go to work and go to church on Sunday and take care of the business of life, people simply don't have the time to master and become experts at everything in relationship to the Bible. And so it began to seem more and more 
uh, sort of um, impractical that everybody would have to be a biblical scholar in order to be sure about what the Bible means. In practice, what really happens is most people trust the religious authorities that are over them. Uh, typically, that's their pastor or some type of religious leader of some sort. And that religious leader functions pretty much like a pope. Uh, they tell them what the Bible means, how they're supposed to live it out, uh, and they trust them that they will be able to lead them and, and guide them into the true understanding of the Bible. Uh, and practically, that's how it works. The only thing is, in Catholicism, we admit that that's how it works, and we link that whole process of being guided into the proper understanding of what the Bible means and how Christian faith is supposed to be lived, we link it to a historical process that originates in Christ himself and the establishment of the church and, and apostolic succession and so on. You know, Mark, you, you hit the nail right on the head of the issue that years ago led me to resign from my Protestant ministry. At the time, I wasn't thinking about becoming Catholic. That was only, as I realized, the answer to the struggle I was going through. But what I realized was that as a Presbyterian pastor, the people in the pew trusted that I had done my homework. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, they trusted me. That wasn't their pope, but they mm -hmm. believed that what I was saying from the pulpit was true. And when I began running into these kinds of conflicts that you're pointing out, mm -hmm. and, and the list goes on and on, my conclusion was, if I can't be certain that my interpretation of Scripture is true, I shouldn't even be in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me away from it. And I think this issue of, of, of sola scriptura, I mean, we're going to take a break again in a moment, but I think the truth is that to just go purely sola scriptura, it's hard to even end up with Trinitarianism, let alone oneness Pentecostalism. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 it yeah. ends ended up with so many early heresies in the church because the data can mm -hmm. be taken conflicting. I'm going to before we take a break, Mark. I'm, I'm going to read you an email that I'd like you to answer when we come back. Mm -hmm. An email came from Scott, and he wrote for your your guest: Do the oneness Pentecostals have an otherwise developed theology, or are they only highlighting the oneness aspect? And then also, does he find that many Christians are practical oneness Christians. Mm. We'll look at that when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and, you, and our guest today is Mark McNeil, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Thank you for joining us on this program. My guest today is, is uh, Mark McNeil. I want to remind you that next week, at this very time on Deep in Scripture, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, 
Our guest will be Guy Dowd. He will join with us to talk about a verse he never saw, a verse that drove him closer to the Catholic Church. You'll hear us again on EWTN. That's 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time next Wednesday, as well as repeated Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, Mark, would you like to go to that email? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there were two questions there. The first one was, uh, does uh, one is Pentecostal theology or the, the United Pentecostal Church, I'd, I'd have to speak to specifically, have an otherwise developed theology beyond these particular questions that we've talked about? And I think the quick answer to the question would be no. Uh, there's a whole lot of flexibility and uh, undefined territories of oneness theology uh, beyond this. Uh, just just to give you one quick example, uh, I heard at least several different approaches to whether or not there's such a thing as original sin whenever I was in Oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, there were several different uh, uh, approaches to a variety of different uh, theological questions that really they had not taken the time to to develop or, or clearly study out positions in respect to them, the movement is very young. Uh, this would be it would be, you know the one that's Pentecostal, the United Pentecostal Church came into existence really in 1945 oh, as as really? a merger of two different uh, oneness organizations uh, that existed before it. I was thinking of the turn of the century Pentecostalism, but this is uh, yeah well half as old the as Pentecostalism itself. Uh, started within the the uh, Trinitarian Pentecostal movement somewhere around 1913, 1914. Uh, and then it broke away over the next several years. They were kind of forced out of the uh, Assemblies of God. And then they sort of went on different paths. The United Pentecostal Church itself was a result of merging together two oneness organizations in 1945. And then it, it has continued to exist since then. So the oneness theology itself has existed since the, you know, the 19s, uh, you know, 1913 or so, 1914. Uh, but, uh, but its organizational form took some decades to take shape. Uh, and uh, and it, this would almost be like talking about Christian theology, you know, 30 or 40 years after the writing of the New Testament. It's just in a very early stage of development uh, as far as uh, history is concerned. Uh, so, uh, you know, so there are many areas of oneness Pentecostal thought that are ambiguous or unclear or undefined or simply haven't even become issues yet. Uh, so that would be my, my quick reply to the first question, and there are lots of specific examples that I could yeah. give, but they tend to focus on those things that make them distinctive. Sure. And so the things that, that, that they don't really have a difference with other people on, there's a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of room for difference. Now, with respect to the second question, do, do I find that uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, Catholics and others are practically oneness, uh, the answer that I would have to give is uh, there's a lot of truth to that statement. There yeah. is, uh, there are a lot of people who function uh, with a kind of modalistic understanding of God. Just to give one quick example, in uh, a textbook that we used to use uh, in my teaching of theology uh, for high school uh, sophomores, it used an example or illustration of the Trinity that was almost identical to the one that I used earlier. Uh, of uh, a single person being having multiple roles of uh, it, in, in fact that particular book used an example of uh, of a female having multiple roles and used that as an example of uh, the father son and holy spirit just like I'm a father son and a husband now my my reaction to that is certainly oneness uh, theology is much easier to understand but in the final analysis uh, it's inconsistent with the data that we find in scripture mm -hmm. 
and certainly it's inconsistent with what we find in the history of the church. And I would also add one other important thing that I, I don't want to leave out here, and that is that uh, one of the things that really drew me to Catholicism is that I had kind of worked my way into Trinitarian theology uh, before I really considered Catholicism, and I went and studied uh, because I was interested in learning more about early Christian uh, theological development, I went and, and sat in on a class at um, uh, the St. Mary's Seminary here in Houston where the priests are trained, and then they have a, an academic theology program there for graduate programs. And, uh, and I sat in on a class uh, pondering whether or not I wanted to, to, to do a degree program there at the school. I wasn't really interested in Catholicism at the time. I was just interested in furthering my knowledge of early Christian uh, history and theological development. And when I went and studied at the seminary here, I sat in a class. I happened to get a very fine and wonderful priest, uh, very dedicated, and he loved Trinitarian theology. Uh, he had done his doctoral dissertation at the Gregorian University in Rome on, uh, on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he had a very deep love of the Trinity. And so I sat in his class, which was a, a course called God in Christ, uh, for a semester, just pondering whether or not I wanted to study there at the Catholic seminary. And the more I sat in his class, the more I discovered that the, the merely academic discovery of the Trinity that I had come to uh, really paled in comparison to the deep and profound riches of Catholic theology in respect to the Trinity uh, that were available to Catholics. Not that everybody has availed themselves of the wonderful things that are available in Catholic theology, but what I discovered is that in the Catholic tradition, we have deep riches that help us to understand that the Trinity is not just an abstract theological claim, uh, but it is the, the most practical and the deepest and most profound of all Christian mysteries. Uh, like we find in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, it makes the statement that the Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith or the Catholic faith. And so uh, for me, the more I come to appreciate the Trinity, the more I come to see that it deeply resonates with the deepest longings of the human heart. If I can, if I can throw this in, I know we're working against the clock here, right. uh, but I, I want to throw in one quick thing here. And I try to get my students to see this, that one of the things that we can see very early in the Bible is, uh, that, you know, when God creates the world, uh, there's a series of statements of how good it is. You know, it is, this is good, this is good. But the, the first statement of something not being good is when God makes the man, Adam, and then he says it is not good that he should be alone. And so he causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he makes the woman from his side or from his heart. And, uh, and then he awakes from his sleep, and he sees himself completed in the other person that God makes from his side, the woman. And so this mystery of it not being good that we be alone, but yet we're made in the image of God, is to me a pointer to the mystery of the Trinity, that yeah. the God who made the human person is not a solitary, alone person, but is an eternal communion of love. And that communion of love, which is God, uh, is where we will find the supreme meaning of oneness, uh, that God's uh, communion of love is, in fact, the supreme grounds of inseparability, uh, that God, because he is supremely one, is supremely love, an inseparable union of love. But that doesn't mean that he's a solitary person, uh, that his unity is found precisely in the inseparability of love that constitutes his very nature. I know that that's speaking very, very fast about some very rich ideas, uh, but, but it, to my mind, the mystery of the Trinity is the most profound truth that I know. And I've said it many times, and I really mean this, 
that the, the highest reason why I believe the Catholic faith is because of the mystery of the Trinity. Mark, uh, thank you so much for that presentation. Just as you said, sadly, we had to, to bring it to a close. Just though, as you mentioned, I'd like to encourage the audience, if you're struggling with an understanding of the Trinity, or you'll wonder how the Catholic Church understands, go to the Catechism both in the theology section as well as the section on prayer. Both help us draw in that relationship with the Trinity. Mark, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Marcus. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. See you next week.